Thank you to everyone joining the webinar today. We'll just wait a minute or so and let um, everyone get into the room. We'll go ahead and get started. Um, welcome to today's Journal Club webinar. My name is Rachel Dager. I'm the Executive Director of the Society for Nutrition Education and Behavior. I'm glad you're joining us. Um, the Journal of Nutrition Education and Behavior is the peer-reviewed uh, journal of the Society, um, and Janie B. is dedicated to advancing nutrition education and behavior research, practice, and policy. Um, I have this a PDF handout of the presentation for today that I will drop into the chat box so everyone can download that and follow along with the presentation. Uh, just a reminder that we will uh, take questions at the end of the presentation. Uh, so please type those in the Q&A block or the chat block. Uh, we will moderate questions to our presenters. Uh, when the webinar ends today, there is a short survey. We appreciate your feedback on this session as well as ideas and suggestions for future webinars. And then watch for an email follow-up. should be by Wednesday of this week. And the email comes from Zoom. And it'll have uh, the link to the recording, uh, your CEU certificate that you earned for your live attendance, as well as the handout again as a follow-up. So I will turn things over to our moderator, Dr. Kristen DiFilippo, who's a teaching assistant professor at the University of Illinois. Thank you, Rachel. Today I get to introduce our speakers and want to thank them for joining us. Our speakers are Anna Moffs Rodriguez, who received a BA in nutrition and wellness and a master's degree in education from Instituto Tecnológico in de Monterrey in Mexico City. I apologize for not saying that smoothly. Um, she worked as a nutritionist several years before completing her MS in nutrition interventions, communication and behavior change at Tufts University. She is currently a PhD student at Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition and Policy. Her work is focused on promoting dietary behavior change in underprivileged communities. Brett Ovis, Otis is the Nutrition Communication Project Manager at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. He merges education and training in health communications, journalism, and sustainability, along with professional experience in public health nutrition communications. His work focuses on making research accessible and useful to a range of audiences, from policymakers and educators to the general public. Dr. Josimir Matei is the Donald and Sue Pritzker Associate Professor of Nutrition at the Department of Nutrition, TH, Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. She investigates genetic, dietary, and sociocultural determinants of cardiometabolic diseases in racial and ethnic groups and underserved populations as a framework to expl explain health disparities. 
Dr. Matei combines epidemiological research with culturally tailored interventions in the United States, Puerto Rico, and Latin America. She is a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Culture of Health leader and has received multiple accolades for her body of work and her mentoring. Today, they're sharing their work, cultural adaptation, and social media promotion of healthy eating guides for Spanish speakers with us. I want to thank them all for being here, and at this time, I can turn it over to our speakers. Thank you very, very much, Kristen, and thank you and welcome um, to all of our attendees today. Um, first of all, my appreciation to the organizing committee um, for inviting us today. We're very excited to present our work on adaptation on social media promotion um, of the healthy eating guides um, and this is specifically tailored to Spanish speakers and I, I would like to say a couple of words about how this all started. Um, it's going to be a 40 minutes presentation but it's uh, years of work that has been um, under um, development and um, Brett, Anna and I have known each other for more than five years and since then we have been working on this project and it's it's been an interesting journey and I hope that we take you together on this journey and it's um, there's more to come so please stay tuned for the end of the slides of what the next steps of this journey are going to be. Um, so with that, um, let me get you started on why do we need to do this? Oh, first, some nutrition educational competencies. I know that some of you are taking this for credit. Um, so these are the competencies that we are going to be learning about today. And none of us have any conflict of interest to declare regarding this presentation. So we focus on this because we, um, as researchers, we know that there's a lot of evidence that's being generated every single day. And we have papers, policies that are constantly being out. And that research and that evidence needs to be translated, needs to be implemented in all of the populations to optimize health benefits for everyone, as, as that's the mandate that we have for health. And um, in order to do that, we have to adapt some of that evidence in the best way possible to speak to the populations that are, are being served, and again, to optimize those health benefits. One clear example of that are the Dietary Guidelines for Americans. Because for this audience, it's very well known. And these are disseminated widely. As you know, the Dietary Guidelines for America are based on the latest and most recent and the strongest evidence of disease prevention and mostly for chronic diseases, chronic diseases which are the most prevalent in the United States. Now, these are disseminated widely. You go to the website, which is here, and there's a whole line of educational material, resources for both the general public as well as for professionals based on those evidence. And one of those includes the MyPlate Guide, um, which has been um, developed based on the guidelines along with educational instructions of how to fill your plate a balanced meal, and this is um, for not only in English, but along for in many other languages for many other populations, considering the diversity that we have in this country. Now, one of the things when people are translating messages is that we have to consider all the individual and sociocultural factors that influence the understanding of those messages and the possible outcomes. Now, in health communications and in nutrition communication, most of that is really often focused on the part of the individual. And I'm going to use my layers up here on the part of the individual, which is little, little, um, mostly around the health literacy uh, of the person and about the complexity or the easiness of that message, how we craft that message and how the person might be understanding that message. But we rarely focus on the other cultural factors that might be influencing how a person might be understanding that message outside of this literacy and this delivery part, which are the cultural norms and the attitudes towards that message that a person might have. And that is a big factor of how that is going to relate 
to eventual health outcomes and how that person is going to appreciate and take action upon, upon that message. And that leads us to um, the concept of culture as an iceberg, which is really an aspect that we have been undermining in um, health communications and in messaging. Again, just focusing on messaging at this surface level on just the straightforward textual or visual communication part of a message without understanding that messages also con consider cultural parts of, uh, of the actual intended messaging that you want to communicate. That includes all the attitudes, all the norms, all the beliefs and values, all the nonverbal cues, all the little you know, things that you might mean within those wordings that you might be saying or within a picture that you might be saying. The things that are technically and literally not seen, but rather understood and perceived. And that's more meaningful and more important than the surface level um, tailoring in a message. So to give you an example, surface structured components are material and messages, um, the actual channel, whether you're putting it in a print or whether you're putting it in a visual, the setting, um, the ethnicity, the, the things that you actually observe, whether you're delivering it through um, a, a coach or a coach that might be within the same culture of the person, but the deep structure component are those more cultural and social and historical contexts, the perception of the religion and the political context of the particular person, the identity, which is different than the, uh, the one that you might advocate, adjudicate, but the one that the person feels. And these things are very difficult to sometimes assess, but are more important to the person and really, really speaks to that person in terms of their behavior. Now, one thing that has been facilitating and that has been um, pushing forward these messages have been digital technologies, especially in the concept of adaptive behavioral messages. Because now with um, the facility of uh, artificial intelligence, of moving forward the massive amount of information, we can take advantage of these digital technologies to culturally ascertain culturally adapt and then implement and test this then um, sorry for the real honesty but this culturally adapted intervention and this is something that has been promoted and there are policies actually pushing forth for the taking advantage of digital technologies to move for push for these um culturally adapted interventions having said that when we were scouting the literature around this, um, we identified three big gaps in this field. One is that, again, most of the adaptations have been just focusing on this surface level and really ignoring these deep structure factors that whenever we were looking at how things and how materials and her messages were adapted, there was not a structured way of doing so. There was really no standardization of how this was being done or no reporting of how this was done. We just read the materials of this was there before, this was an after, but we really didn't understood the process of how this was being done by people and by researchers. And then the third gap was that the internet-based messages were very scarce um, and they were not being evaluated. We rarely saw metrics on how these um, internet-based messages were put out there, then what, what was happening? How were these being followed? So in that light, we decided to conduct this project by culturally adapting the kids' healthy eating plate um, to Spanish-speaking Latinos. And we wanted to use a predefined framework, a specific process, and, and walk through that process. And also we wanted to disseminate this tool in social media and measure this impact and show the changes in engagement metrics um, from using, using this adapted um, tool. 
Now we're going to present this, but throughout the presentation, I want to note that we're going to be using the term Latinos. And that term is going to refer to people of all genders. And that is going to be inclusive of Latin American countries, but we're going to be specifically focusing on Spanish speakers um, I know Latin America includes other languages, but this was only a translation in Spanish at that, an adaptation, I'm sorry, in Spanish at this point. Now, the reason why we focus on Spanish um, speakers is because in the region, it is the largest one. It's about 20% of the population in the US and about 700 million more people in Latin in the Latin American region. But it's also a very culturally diverse population. And that speaks to the concept of deep cultural tailoring that I was referring to about previously, in the sense that we have a whole range of diverse cultures and food. We're not a homogenic group. We have different foods and we have then to tailor those messages to various groups. We just cannot just take this surface level. We just have to go dig deeper. Um, around it. So we were really considering and our hypothesis was that this just one, one size fits all model that the current plate has or the current DGAs have for um, telling healthy eating messages may not be what Latinos really want or are familiar with because it's not speaking to that culture and they might we might need to dig a little bit deeper around that. This is just really one blanket statement. The other thing that we had to consider is that there is an existing digital divide among Latinos. And even though they have been making um, progress with their internet use, they are still lagging behind in terms of, of internet usage, especially for those who are using language, Spanish as their, their predominant language at home. In terms of frameworks, I have to say that there are several out there, but we decided to use this use this one. And I know that it's an intimidated slide when you look at it and there are 10,000 words in there, but this is the framework for reporting adaptations and modifications by Wilson and Stearman. And we decided to use this because it's really one that walks you through the process of the when, the who, the what, the where, and the reason to doing a cultural adaptation. And it's a great pro, um, framework to use before, during, and after the process of adaptation. You can select and it makes you stop and think of why you're doing this adaptation. Um, and I really recommend it. And later on, you're going to see how we applied it. But again, it's not the only one. And here's another framework that um, it's also pretty good that Tells, um, walks you through the process of adaptation and implementation. And you can also use it as a checklist when you're reporting about this later on for your manuscript. And why I like it is that it expands all throughout the process of adaptation to the process of sustainability, which is something very important in health communication. We don't want that message to stop. We just want it to be sustainable, which is something that we are also very being very mindful of. With that, I want to make sure that when we're thinking of cultural adaptations, we are focusing here on Spanish speakers on the Latino community. And usually that's where our mind goes as we're thinking of adaptations, racial and cultural. But culture is a big concept and there are many constructs around this. And this process can be adapted for many, many groups, including um, religious, sexual orientation, gender-based, generational-based, even geographic, you can define culture. However, that is because all groups have their own definition of what culture influences and those beliefs around food and health that is going to influence how the messages that you're delivered to them are going to be tailored. So with that, I'm going to let um, Anna Mouse continue on our process. Thank you. Thank you. And So I hope you're able to see the screen. Um, thank you. Um, so in the next 12 minutes or so, I am going to talk through the process, like the actual process of cultural 
validation for these healthy eating guides. Um, so to start, I would like to spend some minutes talking about the original materials. So this comes from the Healthy Eating Plate, which is a tool that has visual and written guidelines around helpful food choices. Uh, so this was developed by uh, the Harvard School of Public Health and it's available in the Nutrition Source website. This was developed in 2011 and throughout the years, different translations have been made available. So today you can find more than 30 translations to different um, languages and also tailored to different countries. So, uh, for example, we have Spanish translations relevant for Spain and also for Latin America. Um, in 2015, a kid's healthy eating plate was also developed and the intent was to make this um more approachable to children and also to convey some guidelines around their nutrition needs. Um, as you can see, the, the visuals are different, making it more compelling to, to children. And this is what we focused on. We made a cultural adaptation of this kid's healthy eating plate. Um, the Nutrition Source website has some tracking analytics. So we are able to see who is accessing these different websites. And we identified that people from different Latin American countries were accessing these materials. So those are kind of like the reasons behind this adaptation. And as I said, we focused on the kids' healthy eating plate, particularly for Latin American individuals. So this is what we came up with. We created the Plato para Comer Saludable para Niños, and we made the adaptations to uh, mostly the written component that you can find in the nutrition source. As you can see, the design didn't change, but we also altered the words inside the graphic design. Um, this was structure, cultural adaptation, and I will walk through the process in a few minutes. I just wanted to highlight that the intended audience for this adaptation was U.S. Spanish-speaking children from Latin American heritage or also children from their original home country, which were accessing remotely. Um, a second intended audience are caregivers and health professionals who provide diet-related counsel to these populations. Um, so as Dr. Josie was explaining, we use this framework, uh, which is the framework for reporting adaptations and modifications uh, to evidence-based interventions. And this is a modification of the framework to highlight the parts that were more relevant for this particular adaptation. Um, so I want to draw your attention to some of these aspects. This was a very planned and proactive adaptation, as I was just explaining. Most modifications happened at the content and context level. Uh, by tailoring, adding, or substituting information. But we also wanted to make sure that the message was um, aligned with the original intent of the healthy eating plate. Um, and this happened while the kids' healthy eating plate continued to be regularly promoted in the nutrition source. So there was no modification to the original material while this adaptation was taking place. So to talk about that, the adaptation process per se. Um, this took about two months. And the reason you see this loop, it's because it was a very iterative process. It involved a lot of going back and forth. And um, it was led by uh, two Spanish speakers, native Spanish speakers from two different Latin American countries, Dr. Josie and myself. But we also talked to different people from the community colleagues that also were from different Latin American countries to include their perspective and opinions and to get their input on particular phrases or wordings that we weren't um, like entirely sure about. The reason for this, as we were saying, is because Latin America uh, is very multicultural within the Latino culture. Like there's a lot of heterogeneity and we wanted to make sure that this was relevant to, to the whole audience. So this is, this is a big primary audience that we were trying to reach, not only in the US, but also globally. So we wanted to keep it as relevant as possible for everyone without making it like the text too long and too worthy. So that's where all these uh, conversations were very helpful. Uh, just as a side note, we also have a black and white uh, downloadable material so that kids can print done by themselves at home. Um, and I would like to spend a few minutes just talking about how some of these changes looked, particularly for food items and meals. As um, Dr. Josie was saying, um, 
there are multiple words, multiple foods, multiple relevant dishes in different Latin American countries. Uh, so we try to use some of these as examples in the categories that we were describing in the in the healthy eating guidelines. Um, try to use either the most common Spanish word and also adding some ethnically specifically terms that would make it relevant for people from different countries. Uh, so here in the top right, you can see the original version. As you can see in English, it's very short to the point, choose beans and peas. And when you adapt it to different um, Latin American cultures, this adds a little bit of wording. But it, the purpose, again, is to make it relevant for this broad audience. So as you can see, it adds a few words, but that's the intent of it. Um, Another thing that we explicitly did in terms of text and wording was change some of the catchy phrases that are available in the English materials. So, uh, for example, the original, as you can see highlighted, it says trade inactive seat time for feed time. So that's kind of like a rhyme. It has a catchy component to it. Uh, the, the literal translation to Spanish would not necessarily work. Uh, so we tried to adapt it using colloquial language instead. Uh, so that's why um, we want to make sure, again, that the message is conveyed, not just the um, literal translation. So that's how the adaptation can look. And you can see that on the right. Another important thing that we uh, thoroughly discussed was the tone for addressing the reader. Uh, so in Spanish, the pronoun you can be translated in formal or a formal version. And this determines how you conjugate verbs. So this comes up very frequently throughout the text. Uh, as we were working with this, we identified how different countries in Latin America use formal and informal you or tu o usted. And there are a lot of differences. It depends on who is the, um, the communicator, who's the audience, what type of message is being conveyed. So there are a lot of different ways to use this. Um, we reached consensus of using the formal version uh, just to make sure that this adaptation was more relevant to a broader audience. So here you can see how that would change the verb. Here, uh, the final version includes consuma muchas frutas. If we had used the informal you, it would be consume. Uh, but we wanted to spend some time here because this is a good example of deep structure cultural adaptation. So I have an image of a tree here, but this is at the same concept of the iceberg. Uh, we can see like these deep-rooted values are being conveyed in just a very simple word. When we use the formal you, we are um, like being aligned with the concept of respect that is very common in Latin American countries. So um, if we had only done a surface level adaptation, it would be okay to just translate the you to, to the informal one. But we really wanted to convey that the importance of the beliefs and attitudes and um, the formality of using and addressing the reader with the formal version of you. And then another um, example of a change we did was in terms of gender-based words. So Spanish, uh, all genders or, or all nouns, sorry, are gender-based. So we have female and male nouns. So we had to add those specific pronouns and that's um, that's that's very um, apparent in the words that we use. But we also had to think about how to refer to children because children uh, in Spanish, there are two words to translate. It could be niños or niñas, so female or male. Um, so again, we had a lot of conversations around this and we reached the consensus of using the general male noun. And we added a notification that, of course, this is not available in the English version. This is Necessary, but we added a note to say that the term niños is used in general and referring to uh, individuals of all genders. So this was a note that was added. Um, two things to keep in mind is that uh, our main goal with this was also to ensure that the flow of the website as people are reading was not interrupting by using different um, guidelines around inclusive language. And also, as we were reviewing the different guidelines from different Latin American countries, there is a lot of variety in how inclusive language is being approached. So we also reached consensus in that sense. Um, we wanted to make it as broad as possible for everyone. So these were just 
some a few examples that we did during this adaptation. Some reflections from that process are that this was very iterative. Uh, it involved a lot of back and forth and including different perspectives and talking to different people from Latin American heritage or countries of origin was key. Uh, some future directions that we would like to pursue are, as I said, like this is an evolving material. So this is not uh, the end product with cultural adaptation. I think that it's important to revise and engage continually with intended audiences. Language evolves, um, needs evolve also in uh, the online environment. Uh, it's it's good to keep things fresh. Um, and then another thing, uh, as I mentioned, we didn't change the design or the visuals, we just change the wording inside them. So consider maybe changing the visuals to include some foods, like drawings or foods that are more relevant to Latino um, communities. So that's kind of like the end of the cultural adaptation process. And now I'll hand it to Brett for the dissemination part. Great, thank you, Anna. Let me share my screen. And hopefully you can all see that okay. Um, so. Thank you, Anna and Dr. Matei. Uh, you've been wonderful colleagues um, in making these resources possible for our audience. Um, as mentioned, my name is Brett. I'm a communications project manager and work on our department's nutrition source website. It uh, reaches an inter international audience, just to kind of give you a sense of um, the scale and reach of the site. And I'm gonna take you back now to 2019 when we disseminated this resource. So the Kids Healthy Eating Plate, uh, Spanish translation was published in May of 2019, and it was posted on our Nutrition Source website. Um, just to clarify, it's this visual, and then there's a lot of context that goes with it. So that was, was where some of those components that Anna was talking about are featured. Um, so again, it's not just the image on its own. And then we did this, uh, took an approach of utilizing social media to kind of get some attention on it, because I think it's fair to say, you know, promote, uh, creating and, and promoting any any new resource, getting attention on it, you know, right off the bat can be a challenge, um, especially for a predominantly English language website um, where we're trying to reach this uh, different audience. So I'm going to walk you through some of the social media adaptations. One of the most unique um, approaches we took uh, that we hadn't done previous to this uh, study was using Facebook paid promotion. And so what we did is over a 10 day period with just a small budget, uh, trial budget of $150, we took the graphic and we did what was called a boosted post. And so with a boosted post, it's kind of like an advertisement. You can use some of Facebook's targeting tools to tailor um, the delivery to you know, the int intended audience. And again, we kind of went with a broad you know, look at you know, some, some of the different Spanish speaking countries. And once a post to a boosted posts uh, engagement period ends, it, it is available um, to receive additional engagement. But what we found when we looked at the, the data here is that most of these um, engagement metrics happen within that 10 day period. So this was quite a boost for a new resource um, right off the bat. So you can see here, you know, the this image was displayed on screens over, you know, 244,000 times. It was seen by over 186,000 people. And it received about 9,000 link clicks um, just during that 10-day that period. Um, so this was something we hadn't really seen before with the promotion of new resources. And um, there is this, you know, as we're looking at engagement metrics, again, something that will come up time and time again is the kind of the quality of engagement. So it's one thing to have it appear on a screen. It's one thing to have it, you know, be something you're sort of looking at and considering, but getting people to click through to a website is always a challenge, you know, when we're promoting resources online. So what we, else, what we also did through some of the other platforms, which was uh, in this case, Instagram and Twitter, was uh, we didn't have any paid promotion options here, but what we wanted to do was to utilize some of the inherent features of these platforms to help try and educate within platform. So reducing the, the, the necessity of getting people to click through um, to the website. So on Instagram, we had a six slide Instagram story um, components um, of the kids healthy eating plate were provided in English and Spanish to reach you know, both audiences of the school's Instagram account. Um, and then similarly, similarly on Twitter, we used a Twitter thread uh, feature 
where you know we broke up different components of the messages um, and had those available in tweets. So again, this was a, a way to sort of provide some information and engagement without necessarily getting people to click through at that moment. And so kind of getting to the metrics and what we're sort of able to analyze, uh, we could utilize Google Analytics on our Nutrition Source website to kind of help us get a sense at, you know, who, how are these resources reaching people? Which countries are they, are they reaching? And this is a graphic from our paper um, that I've broken up into two pieces here. I'll start with the, the kids' healthy eating plate, the original versus the Spanish um, kids' plate. And you can see here that unsurprisingly, uh, the English version of the Kids Healthy Eating Plate, um, you know, is primarily visited by a U.S.-based audience, um, probably English-speaking, uh, but obviously there are many Spanish speakers in the U.S. as well, and so you can see a percentage was visiting uh, the Spanish translation. Um, we have here the top three Spanish language countries uh, that visited these resources, and you'll see here that one of these is not a Latin American country, that was that is Spain. Um, and what was interesting is that you know, we when we saw that there was a lot of traffic coming from Spain, it was you know sort of a an indicator to us that you know without doing an entirely new adaptation, and again this kind of idea of being flexible and iterating as we go along, what we ended up doing on that page was to um, provide an alternative graphic uh, for download. That the main difference in the graphic was this change between vegetales and verduras uh, for uh, vegetables. And so that was something we sort of ended up doing on the fly because we noticed, you know, this amount of traffic coming from Spain. And there was a sort of a similar story when we looked at the um, original uh, healthy eating plate translation. So again, we had this Latin American version and we had this um, version that was tailored for a Spanish speaking audience in Spain. And you can see here when you're comparing these two versions that visitors uh, from Spain overwhelmingly um, visited the, the Latin American version rather than the version that was intended to them. So, you know, there are multiple things that could be going on here. One thing that we have to grapple with that's a challenge um, with any website is the idea of search engine optimization. And so for those of you who might not be familiar with uh, search engine optimization or SEO, it's basically when you search a term in Google or another search engine, how far up the list that uh, page or that search result comes up. And if there is a page that has, you know, certain terms or it's set up a different way or it has more visits over time, it will kind of, you know, increase its position on the list. So what we are kind of thinking here is that, you know, the Latin American version was visited probably by more users globally. So it started to develop a, a higher domain or link authority. And so when a person um, from Spain, if they were, you know, searching for a term like this general headline, there's not a difference. And so they're going to be rout routed. You know, if they just searched El Plato para comer saludable, they're probably going to be routed to the Latin American version, even though there are components within the, the Spain version that would be more tailored to them. So again, you know, taking a look at this, this, uh, this engagement and these metrics, it's a reminder to us that we, you know, put a button on the page so that, you know, if someone from Spain was visiting, it could get them routed to the right place. But these are just some of the kind of the behind the scenes of what we, we grapple with when we're you know, trying to get these resources to the right to the right audiences. And not to go through this whole thing, but this is just sort of a look uh, and trying to have a, a bit of a comparison for engagement with these different materials. Um, so again, as Anna mentioned, these were all posted and you know published at different times. Um, the, the, the Spanish Kids Healthy Eating Plate was the most recently posted. Um, so something we tried to do was look at, you know, what was the difference within those first 116 days after publication of the resource um, with the Spanish kids plate having this tailored social media approach to it that the others didn't. And what we found is that, you know, it was viewed over, you know, 20,000 times within those first 116 days. And aside from the, you know, original healthy eating plate, which has been, as Anna mentioned on the site since 2011, so has really developed sort of an authority from a SEO perspective over time, it was really successful in getting, you know, a fair share of users right to the resource um, in a short period of time, whereas it might have taken, you know, many months to kind of develop that organic search traffic um, and get, get the, the correct users uh, to the plate. And you can see here, you know, a snapshot later that year in August 2019, it still was maintaining after the, all those promotional, you know, period had ended, it was still maintaining some engagement. 
But what's encouraging to see is that, you know, in looking at this three years later in August 22, um, it's, you know, the average monthly page views have, uh, you know, quadrupled within that time. Um, and it's, you know, relatively lower in comparison to the kids health eating plate. So there's certainly some, you know, gaps in access in, on our site between Spanish and English resources. But again, there are so many variables here for engaging these metrics. You mentioned earlier, you know, was the digital divide in internet use, you know, for potentially English speakers versus Spanish speakers in different countries. So those are all things to contend with. And then as mentioned, you know, we're still going to have this limitation of being a Spanish or translated uh, resource within a predominantly English language website. So kind of reflecting, you know, looking back and reflecting, it's kind of interesting to think back on 2019 compared to where we are today. The internet already in these few years have changed so much, um, you know, through the course of the pandemic in the way that people access health information, what sources they trust, what sources they don't trust. There's so many things we could spend an entire session talking about what's going on with, with the internet and how, how people engage with it. But I will say that even still, these were very promising results um, just to have that level of, of viewership and interest in a brand new resource, you know, right when it was published. Um, but of course they should be interpreted with caution because of all these variables that change all the time and all the, the complexities in tracking user engagement. And then of course, you know, as I mentioned before, there is this variability in the quality of engagement, you know, so what is the difference between just looking at the resource versus getting to the page and spending time reading on it, having repeat visits and return visits. There are so many ways that you can kind of pare down and dig deeper into the, to the engagement. So, and, uh, and even with an online engagement, it doesn't necessarily equal behavior change. So more research is needed to see, you know, how these uh, make a difference. And so 2019 compared to today, what would we do differently um, if we were to do this over or if we were to do new adaptations or, you know, take on new promotions? Certainly looking at, you know, the platforms of use, social media platforms for our intended audience. Obviously, TikTok wasn't really around at that time, and that's become one of the premier social media networks that different age groups in, engage with. And so there's a totally different process for creating content for a platform like TikTok than there is for Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. Um, so, you know, how might we have utilized video and broken up the components in video and who would have been the speaker or the, the person provided the messages? Those are all a differ different components to think about. And then certainly who could we be collaborating with that are already reaching this intended audience, right? We sort of did this as, you know, a one-off situation of utilizing our social media networks. Um, and, you know, we obviously had reshares and retweets, you know, from, from other organizations. And in the years since we provided this resource, um, we've been getting many requests from health clinics um, that are, you know, working with Spanish speaking populations and utilizing this resource. And so looking ahead, you know, how might we do some like partnerships or collaborations to help get this, get this resource to uh, the intended audience and who, who we want it to be seen. So. Those are my reflections on dissemination, and I will pass it back to Anna for some final takeaways. Yes, thank you, Brett. Um, so we wanted to end with some final messages um, and then um, some reflections about like future work or future considerations. Um, and the first is that cultural adaptation efforts should be planned, purposeful, and collaborative. And it's key to engage the primary audience and people from different perspectives um, to really make content is relevant for, for the intended audience. Uh, using a framework is particularly helpful to guide the process and also to report the modification. As Dr. Josie mentioned in the introduction, um, there's like some gap in the literature around this. And finally, a budget assigned to the active dissemination of, of these um, materials really increases the reach and impact on intended audiences. So that's also something to keep in mind because maybe um, health organizations can allocate uh, from the beginning. And in terms of like future work, uh, we feel that this really opens the possibility of having some mixed method research to explore how this uh, website in particular um, relates to their intended audience. So looking at how they engage with it and the impact it has among them, uh, not just with the website, but also into behavior, like how, how it translates into food choices. Um, and it would also be 
first the interesting sorry to look at individuals from different countries or from different Latin American heritage, both within the U.S. and also outside the U.S. and also in comparison to the different dietary guidelines that are available in these different Latin American countries. So these are just some ideas that we have for continuing this work um, that it's very close to our hearts. Um, so with that, yes, I think that that was the last slide. So thank you very much. We're looking to your questions and comments and discussion. Thank you so much. It's been great to learn about the process that you went through from all of the whole steps along the way. Um, so as people have questions, please go ahead and enter those into the question and answer box so that I can moderate those to our presenters. So one attendee um, said they absolutely love the that you translated the plate into Spanish and um, the information, the materials, but they wondered what was behind the decision to not change the pictures on the plate. I read that question and I feel that that's uh, this is gonna need an answer from the three of us um, because there was a, a justification from all angles. Um, from we wanted to so the the healthy eating plate is translated in more than one language. Um, it's not only in Spanish, and we wanted to keep a consistent visual across all languages. So that was one of the main reasons for that. Um, so, but having said that. When you, uh, as Brett said, it's not only the visual, but there's also all of the educational component. So when you read through the educational component, we do provide examples of fruit, vegetables, foods, specific legumes, specific um, staple foods that, that might be more familiar to the each, actually in each of the um in each of the cultures and in each of the adaptations, you will see this. But for this one in the Latinos, we did that. So it's not on the actual visual, but it's on the educational components. But the main reason was precisely because we wanted to keep that visual as consistent as possible throughout all of the um, um, languages and through all adaptations. And Brett and Anna can provide more insights on that as well. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I think that I would also like to say, um, like, my understanding is that there was like a small budget for dissemination, but there might not necessarily be a budget for design. Right. Uh, so that's also like from a feasibility perspective, that's also something that we wanted to keep in mind, like it would have taken more time, more effort and more resources to change the 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 plate, like the visuals. Yeah, and I'll jump in. I'm sharing my screen just to show a, a full view of what the page looks like as it's posted on Nutrition Source. Um, hopefully, you can see that. But you can see here that there are, you know, various examples that are written in the text, as Dr. Matei was mentioning. But it's true that you know, there's this is kind of comes down to almost a resource perspective, right? We um, this was a a visual that was we had hired. This was developed as part of our curriculum, um, an English language curriculum called Eat Well and Keep Moving. Um, and so there was a budget through the creation of the curriculum to have an illustrator create this graphic. And there was a lot of iteration between what even landed as a visual that, that related to kids. I mean, one that comes up to mind as we were going through that process is how to visualize chicken, right? So when we had um, chicken as like a, for example, like a chicken breast, it kind of just looked like a blob on a plate and it wasn't, it didn't, the, the message didn't translate, but they kind of recognize this like idea of like a drumstick looking chicken. Um, similarly, things like tofu did not translate visually. They looked like, um, I think one child had said that they looked like a sugar cube. So that was obviously not a good message to be sent visually. So it's this interplay between what we're able to visualize and um, certainly as we're looking to translate uh, cultural adaptations, you know, obviously there might be things that are a little bit more um, specific or recognizable within those cultures. And so, I mean, maybe someday, you know, we can have some some different visuals that are represented. Um, but yeah, from a resource perspective, I think it's a limitation. Um, and also it's a it's a discussion of, you know, if we do it with one language, which other languages do we do it with? And, you know, again, it, it kind of comes down to resources, but you know that these things might change in the future as we see shifts with um, AI and the ability to, you know, that's that's a whole different conversation. So I think there's possibility for the future, but it was just not not uh, not in the cards for that that time. Yeah, 
No, that's really interesting to, to hear about. Uh, so another question, uh, thank you for the presentation. What resources did you use to decide which terms were suitable for Latin American countries? For example, verdura versus vegetal. Um, yeah, I, I can share some initial thoughts and then if uh, Brett or Dr. Josie want to add. Uh, so um, I think like the first step was also looking at dietary guidelines from different American countries. So that was one thing we did. Uh, and then also um, just talking to different people within the US, like colleagues who are from different countries, um, also native Spanish speakers. Um, yeah, and I think like those were the two main ones that come to mind uh, at first. Okay, and then another question is how to translate this for nutritionists. So what should nutritionists um, do with so many variables addressing people who are Spanish language speaking? Also, how would you recommend nutritionists getting the materials they create to be translated? Who could they go to for, for translation? That's a... Interesting question. Um, one of the things that we have to advocate is that all of these materials are available for free and in our website. And Brett, since you had it um, readily open, maybe you can open it again so that they can see it. But it's on the Nutrition Source uh, website of um, Harvard's Department of Nutrition. And they are readily available. They can be downloaded. And as we mentioned, we have done the cultural adaptation for Spanish, but the translation is available in many other languages, so you can access that there. Um, and in terms of as a nutritionist, that the other thing is that we intended the audience was children, but the intended use is precisely to be used as educational materials for nutritionists and dietitians. This is exactly the intended use for this. Um, you know, children are very rarely going to go and download these materials and learn them by themselves. It's really intended as an educational tool. So by all means, this is exactly what we want, is precisely for you guys to go out there, for you to go out there and download this and, and, and use it. Um, this has been adapted, but as we mentioned, there's still more adaptation that we can do. And if you have additional tools or additional um, materials say not only on healthy eating but on something particular like healthy behavior like eating behaviors or other things that you would like to do um, our uh, suggestion is to always talk to someone else especially around language and about how this might be interpreted so talk to your audience even if you cannot do a formal adaptation the way that we kind of walk you through it but at least run it by your potential audience just a quick question of what do you understand about this? How do you are interpreting this? They can even tell you, I offended by it, or I don't understand anything about it, or this is perfect, but it would be better if even that will help you as an individual counselor and as an individual um, nutritionist or dietitian to give better advice around some of these materials. If you're able to do some more formal adaptation in the way that we showed today, that would be outstanding. Um, but even just getting feedback from your audience would be super helpful. Yeah, that's great advice. Thank you. Um, so you mentioned using foods applicable to the population. Uh, and this listener was curious if you received feedback from the population about potential discrepancies in food choices. So I'll jump that in was, there. Um, oh, go ahead, Brett. Well, just from, yeah, I mean, the, the kind of the beauty of this being posted online and having what we have online with this bi-directional communication where people can send an email or tweet or, you know, respond to a comment on social is that we have had, not maybe not with, with this plate, um, but with some of our other translations, we've had folks uh, writing in and saying, I, not I noticed you use this word that is correct, but we would more often use this word instead, you might consider changing this. And that's wonderful feedback, right? And that's the thing about these online resources that we can adapt them over time. And, you know, kind of getting back to the last question, when you are embarking on a, a, a translation or an adaptation, just be ready for that kind of flexibility and keep your files editable, you know, so you can jump back in and change them as needed. Um, because these things are not static, right? Things change over time and 
the types of foods even that people in, engage with um, and uh, or things that they might recognize uh, or you know be popular at one point might be different than another. So uh, keep keep them flexible. So another question someone had, if you did have to choose one translation due to financials, which would you choose? I missed the question. One translation with what? I'm sorry. If you had to choose one translation due to financial restrictions, which would you use? You mean language-wise or? I think so. I can't. <laughs> depends on where you are, I'd say, right? I, right. I feel like that's, that's. I mean, we'll, I mean, we're based in the U.S. Again, we're a primarily U.S. language website, but the second most spoken language, right, in the U.S. is Spanish and like a, the Latin American general <laughs> Spanish. And so I think that's one of the reasons, you know, that's one of the key reasons why we, we embarked on this. But um, I think this depends on where you at, you know, where you're at, like what setting are you in? Is it, are you in a a local like health clinic and do you have you know a huge um population of certain of a certain language and 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 might you need to, to tailor and adapt for that so i really think it's kind of location and, and specific with the audience you audiences you work with right we we did the um latino and spanish translation and adaptation quite rapidly after the healthy did plate for kids um, the kids healthy eating plate came out um, but almost immediately the Chinese um, Cantonese and Mandarin came uh, also were translated and almost right away the plethora of languages that we have also came out so it was fast and furiously I mean we didn't really wait for them um, it was just immediately the one that did this was the one that was adapted so the translations were posted almost at the same time. Um, and I think that Brett is very right in saying that it really depends on where you're adapting this to. No. And then another, pers oh, another person asks um, for, in addition to you all um, and collaborators for perspective, were there anyone else on your team uh, to create the translated resource? Yeah, absolutely. This is a huge team effort. Um, the three of us were involved mostly in the Latino adaptation. Um, but if you click on um, each of these, you would see who was involved in the translation adaptation of each of these languages. I think that's very important is to have people who know what they're doing. Uh, I, I would never claim to be an expert on, you know, a, a Dutch culture or a Croatian translation. Um, I mean, I know the process of the adaptation on the frameworks that we should be using, but I definitely don't know the language, don't know the culture. So we invited experts from um, all of these areas. And I think that's one of the advantages that we had is that we were able to put collaborators and experts um, from our department, our network that is very global um, in that sense. and. Um, Brett can definitely speak about that process as well, but that was definitely a hugely collaborative process. And as Anna mentioned, it's also very iterative. I mean, we was not one or two people. It was just showing it to other people. How, what do you think about this? We really had to reach consensus. And when we couldn't find one word, we found we decided to put multiple words and just say it in multiple ways. And we even have for some um, language this and some for some culture we have multiple versions so you can see a cheese traditional a chinese simplified in spanish we have one spanish for latin america and one spanish for spain which the spanish is different so we did different adaptations for different cultures even though it was technically technically the same language which again speaks about the surface versus the deep cultural adaptation it's not just translating into the language, but really speaking to the people with the values and the, you know, what they would know and they would appreciate. Yeah, thank you. And then one last question. Um, so this person says, I really, and I agree, I really like the iceberg analogy that in-depth elements need to be addressed. How can I assure that Spanish-speaking clientele be addressed in-depth from the perspectives of each of you?
um, if you are a professional that speaks like works one on one with them, just start with asking them to tell them more about them. Just really, really listen to them. Just tell me more about your diet or tell me what about how you're eating or what do you value about eating and just having a two-minute conversation about what do they value about food and eating can give you a really good perspective of what they would like to incorporate keep and not keep within their diet and make sure that you do that um, I think that it's for for our culture and for any culture food is really really important it's it's not only eating but it's just a whole concept of you know how we share our feelings it's all around food um, so just one minute of listening to them. And Anna mm-hmm. and Brett might add a, a little bit more about that. Yeah, I totally agree. I was thinking of just asking people to define healthy eating for them. I feel that that's a key way. I feel that as nutrition professionals, we tend to think about healthy eating in foods and, and nutrients. Uh, but it might be surprising to hear someone's answers. Like people think about healthy eating in terms of like just having time to eat with my family. And that's the 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 key driver, the key attitude. So just that simple question and their short answer can give you a ton of information about what what they value. Well, I want to thank you all so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Um, at this point, I can pass it back to Rachel. Yes, thank you. Uh, Just a reminder, when I close the webinar, there's a short survey and we appreciate your feedback. Uh, Watch for an email follow-up on Wednesday of this week with a link to the recording, uh, your CEU certificate and the handout. And then we'll be back next Monday for our next journal club. Um, So always look at the SNEB website. Uh, There's a couple more webinars that have recently been added beyond just the journal clubs. So please check those out. And a reminder that registration Registration is open um, for the SNEB annual conference, and we just finalized the details for a post-conference tour to Costa Rica. Uh, so, t- talking about uh, Latin American foods. So, um, be sure to check out all those details on the website, and we look forward to seeing you back online. <laughs>